Hi, everybody. Are you looking for a way to slash the costs of your medical expenses? I will perform any operation for $129.95. Come in for brain surgery and receive a free Chinese finger trap. You've tried the best, now try the rest. Call 1-600-DOCTORB. The B is for barking. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the third season of History Obscura. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about medical surgery. Did you know it all started once upon a time in the Stone Age? In fact, anthropologists have discovered evidence as far back as 6,500 years ago that shows our ancestral healers, or scientists, or morbidly curious, routinely drilled holes into one another's skulls. Ancient surgeries like these relied on turpentine and vinegar for infection control, or potentially no infection control at all. This particular practice is called trepanation, and it remained a precursor to modern types of brain surgery for literally thousands of years. Trepanation involves drilling a series of holes into the skull around a piece you want to remove. That piece was discarded, and a survivor of such surgery would hopefully regrow a layer of skin over the membranes within their skull. Of course, there were no narcotics or even razor-sharp stainless steel scalpels involved, just the persistence of the surgeon and the likely comatose state of the patient. Hand-operated drills and other tools similar to those used to extract and carve rocks were used to scrape away at the skull and expose the soft organ within. There were different survival rates around the world with this particular surgery. In the late Iron Age in Switzerland, that's from roughly 450 to 15 BC, the survival rate of trepanation was about 78%. That was hugely successful. And on the contrary, in Iron Age Britain, about one quarter of all patients to receive this kind of surgery actually successfully healed. That number did improve after the Middle Ages. And a similar surgery is still used today, called the craniotomy. Except that afterwards, the piece of skull is actually replaced. In 1996, an exceptionally well-preserved skeleton was excavated at the Stone Age burial site of Eisensheim in Alsace, France. The cranium of the buried individual shows clear evidence of two trepanations. Signs of long-term healing indicate that this type of intravitum surgical intervention was skillfully practiced more than 7,000 years ago. This specific find is the earliest of healed trepanations yet discovered. The latest evidence for prehistoric trepanation comes from the Peruvian Andes, where researchers uncovered 1,000-year-old skulls with striking signs of hand-drilled perforations. And do have a look at our Instagram, at History Obscura Pod, to see a fine example. 
Altogether, the team in Peru unearthed 32 skulls that exhibited evidence of 45 separate procedures. All of these skulls belong to men, and researcher Danielle Curin, an anthropology professor at University of California, believes that's due to such surgery having been illegal on women and children. The practice first began to emerge in Peru around 200 and 600 AD. Examination of a succession of skulls from this area shows that over the years, early Peruvian doctors had evolved their procedures, sometimes using a drill, other times using a cutting or scraping tool. Doctors also sometimes practiced their technique on the dead, much as medical students do today for practice. Researchers of these skulls can tell whether or not a patient survived their surgery based on bone patterns. If the hole had begun to heal, the edge of the bone around the cut would have softened into a rounded shape. And the same is true of a bony crust around and over part of the hole. It's very unlikely that large holes ever regrew completely, leaving most survivors with large, unprotected parts of their heads. The practice did come to an end after the Spanish invasion in the 16th century, when the Spaniards decided this was illegal. However, much evidence still remains of before that time. For instance, an elongated cone-shaped skull with a possible metal implant could represent some of the earliest evidence from Peru of ancient surgical implant post-trepanation. The fact that the skull, which was donated to the Museum of Osteology in Oklahoma City, has a cone shape is actually nothing unusual, as Peruvians during ancient times were known to squeeze children's head with bands during development to achieve this shape. However, the metal implant in this skull is highly unusual, and if it's authentic would potentially be a unique find from the ancient Andean world. The Museum of Osteology, which has posted several pictures of this skull on Facebook, says its experts are not able to verify the authenticity of the metal implant at this time. A representative said that no carbon dating has been done, and an archaeologist has yet to examine it up close. In fact, John Verano, an anthropology professor at Tulane University in Louisiana, said he's quite dubious this is anything authentic. Though John Verano has examined many of these metal-type implants, he thinks this might be a modern-day forgery. The metal implant could have been inserted many decades ago before either the museum or the donor owned it. It's also possible, if the metal plate is not a forgery, that it was used as a grave offering. The metal piece in question was thinly hammered into shape, Based on the fracture patterns, this individual, who looks to be an older male, suffered a massive blunt force trauma to the right side of the head. The fact that the radiating and concentric fracture lines show signs of healing suggests this individual survived at least several weeks to months. Since metallurgic technology varied across the Andes at the time, tests on the metal in the skull could help shed light on where it was made. There are a few other cases from past discoveries where, after a trepanation, 
A piece of the person's bone, or a gourd, was placed in the hole that was cut out. In one case, a person who lived in Peru about 800 years ago wore a tight-fitting skull cap with a metal plate stitched into it. They wore the cap like a helmet to protect the head where no bone remained. Moving forward a little bit into medieval times, for many years, surgery and medicine changed very little, and still was dominated by the writings of the medical practitioner Galen from Greece. Then, the barber surgeon appeared in Europe. This was a craftsman that not only cut hair, but also pulled teeth, performed amputations, bloodlet, and set broken bones. Rows of rotten teeth hung in the windows of their shops, still attached to the string the barber-surgeon tugged and toiled over to pull them from their sockets. Patients in this era were given herbs and alcohol to reduce the excruciating pain of these procedures. Cauterization was used as a means of infection control. By the 1300s, the church allowed dissections of human bodies at medical schools, beginning a long and slow process of understanding the intricacies of the human body. During this era, women were allowed to be surgeons, but not physicians. Surgeons were seen as a lesser profession. Women continued to work as surgeons until they were pushed out in the 1700s with the emergence of medical schools. Throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, Leonardo da Vinci dissected human bodies to create his now-renowned anatomy sketches. It was during this time that opium emerged as a form of pain management. Even with the aid of alcohol and herbs, surgery remained horrifically barbaric. Surgery before anesthetics was brutal. Patients had to be restrained during operations and could easily die from blood loss and, of course, infection. The pain was so great, they often passed out. And unfortunately for these souls, most surgeons believed it was necessary to keep patients alert and awake, so alcohol and opiates were used sparingly. A new century brought the emergence of ligatures in France, but a devastating disease began to spread like wildfire, and it was syphilis. The early strain of the disease was particularly devastating and deadly. As syphilis raged across Europe during the 16th century, surgeons performed rhinoplasties out of skin grafts to remedy its telltale symptom, saddle nose, in which the nose caved in and rotted away. These early skin grafts took agonizing weeks. Before the century's end, Andreas Vesalius published his groundbreaking work, The Fabric of the Human Body. Its accurate diagrams of human anatomy finally dispelled Galen's incorrect concepts that dominated the medical field for centuries. By the 1700s, body snatchers flocked to cemeteries to obtain cadavers for dissection in newly emerging schools. Medical students gathered in dissection theaters to learn human anatomy, though they often had to suffer the terrible smells of rotting corpses. As they studied the intricacies of the human body, they shooed away pesky rats, sparrows, and insects vying for a taste of the stinking, bloated cadavers. 
At this time, surgeons were known best for their speed, especially in amputations, as there was still no effective anesthetic. Unbelievably, the first appendectomy was performed in 1735, surely a horrifically painful event. Laughing gas was first used in 1799, though it still took many years before it was effectively applied to surgery. The earliest general anesthetic was developed in Japan in the early 1800s. Patients were rendered unconscious for anywhere from 6 to 24 hours. And by the mid-19th century, ether and chloroform were being used as anesthetic, despite their obvious and numerous hazards. By the mid-century, Queen Victoria popularized the use of chloroform in childbirth. After all, she was the grandmother of Europe and was no stranger to the task. Later, even cocaine was used. Despite these advancements, surgeries remained risky and terrifying. Patients were often sat upright and restrained with leather straps to prevent them from bracing against the sharp slice of the surgeon's knife. Surgery took another leap forward with the advent of germ theory, hand washing, and sanitation improvements throughout the latter half of the 19th century. I'm sure you remember our friend Dr. Semmelweis. After his sad ending and failure to convince fellow surgeons to wash their hands between surgeries, surgeons did indeed begin sterilizing surgical instruments, clothes, and hands. Added to the mix were rubber gloves, first used in 1890. And with these changes came improved patient outcomes. Survival rates steadily increased. Oh, that they continue to do so. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, would you kindly do me a couple of favors? First, check out Endless Ink Books. This independent publishing house is the main sponsor of History Obscura, and what's more, they are about to publish yours truly's second sci-fi novel, Mission to Mars. Visit EndlessInkBooks.com for works of speculative fiction and graphic novels not available anywhere else. Thank you! Good night.